Anyway. Um, My phone's still silent, so that's uh, good. Yeah, mine is silent. Cool. Um, I'm Candace Stewart, and we're here for an episode of my podcast, Trade Secrets. And today I have one of my favorite guests. I know I've said that before, but it was really true today. I'm here today with John McBride. Uh, he's the owner of Blackbird Studios. And, John, it's so great to see you. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to see you, Candace. always, always. Oh, so great to see you. Well, <clears throat> one of the things I like to talk about, uh, besides everything, is, uh, you know, where were you born? John, where were you born? Just start at the beginning. Wichita, Kansas. Really? We Wesley Hospital. Same hospital Joe Walsh was born in, oh, by the way. Oh, that's amazing. When I met him, I told him we compared notes, and he goes, Man, we've been friends like since the womb. <laughs> <laughs> since the nursery. Oh, that's amazing. So you grew up in Wichita, Kansas. What did your dad do? My dad, this I love this. I love telling this story too, because it just shows you what a great fucking guy. Can I cuss? Oh hell yeah. What a great fucking guy he was. Um my mom and dad had there's four of us, my older sister and two younger brothers. And they had us all in about five and a half, six years in that span. Yeah, my parents. And when he originally went to school, he went and then he went to law school and he became a lawyer. And after about five years or six years of being in law, in other words, about the time we had three to four kids. Yeah. At that point, he did. Um, he came home one day and he said to my mom, he goes, I don't, I am not morally bankrupt enough to work wow. in this type of law anyway. Yeah, right. And he goes, I want to go back and get a PhD in anthropology and start teaching. Oh, my God. I love that so much. And she went. God bless your mom. Do it. And, God you bless know, your mom. it was pretty tough yeah. for the next few years. Yeah. But he got his PhD. And, I had the uh, honor of meeting John's dad, dear listeners, and I can tell you. I, he he was, loved Candace. He was a great man. I, I got to sit next to him at dinner. I think I was amazing. <laughs> Go ahead. And he, what was uh, his first name? John. I'm a junior. Oh, you are a junior. So he's John Douglas that. McBride, and I'm John Douglas McBride Jr. Which, right on. For whatever, you know, there you Yay. have it. So he, uh, he started teaching at Wichita State and... Eventually became the head of the department and, oh and retired from WSU after however many years of teaching. Dude, intelligence runs in this family. You know, I always always talk to you, dear listeners. I mean, you, you can't see us, but if you could, I mean, he just, John radiates just kindness and inclusivity, and he's just a smart cat. And, and his I've dad got a was, pocket protector right now. <laughs> his dad was the same way, though. I mean, I, I met him and I instantly felt comfortable. And what a fascinating and interesting man. Yeah. Oh, God, I love him. You know, and he made an interesting son. Well, you know. <laughs> that, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, what do you say? My Both my parents died in the last seven years. And Aww. after my mom went, I called my dad every day, every night. And we talk. And he's been gone now three years anyway. Aww. And and I would give anything just to have one more phone call. Oh, know? yeah. My, my mom died more. in 2012. I, I feel exactly the same way. And you uh, you never know what you have when you have it. I know. And that's true of your parents, your friends, your family, your co-workers. So, yeah. so this is awesome. So he goes back to school and he becomes an anthropologist and yep. he's running the program. Yep. How old are you by the time? Like, did, what, what adventures did you go on when he was a, an anthropologist? Well, did you have of, any adventures? Part of getting his uh, PhD... He did a study in Singapore, and we happened to have his sister, who was married to Hub Hall, 
Pet, as, I, as we called her, Aunt Pet, yeah. they lived in uh, Singapore, and we went over there for a summer one year. Um, and I think it was 68. I was How probably 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. 10 years old. And uh, We're about my the mom, same age. I was 11. <laughs> and my sister and I and my dad went to Singapore, and my mom my two little brothers went to uh, California, but I'm trying to remember it's a famous city, and I'm sitting near Santa Barbara. Sorry. Oh, yeah, Santa Barbara. I was mental blocking. It's I haven't right. thought of Santa Barbara in a while, even though we played the Santa Barbara Bowl a few times. Dude, I love Santa Martina. Barbara. I now, love that I'm in place. Nashville right now, listeners, but yes. I live in L.A. in Trade Secrets. It's my that, podcast. But That's why it sounds better. I'm, <laughs> I'm here at Blackbird. <laughs> yes. I'm here at Blackbird Studios, and John's been gracious enough to let me record this episode of Trade Secrets here. But I want to get to know, you know, it's funny. I work with a lot of people, and I've worked with them for 30 years or more, and there's so much about their background and their history that led them to this point in their lives that I don't know about. So now you're... In Wichita, Kansas, you're going to high school. Now, were you a good student? Yes. Yeah? Were you an athlete as well? Yes, I was. All right, a jock, and me too. I was a jock Especially too. football and basketball. That's yes. what I loved the most. I played baseball also, but didn't really have the passion for it that I did for football or basketball, and never thought I'd ever go pro, but I sure had a great time playing it. When I was in high school, I went to you know the public school, East High, that was what our neighborhood was on the west side of town. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, but actually, it was the east side, and and I started dating a girl there, sophomore year, and then halfway through the uh, my sophomore year, I had applied for a scholarship at Collegiate, which is a private school. Okay, so I got a half academic, half sports scholarship Dude, to go win, to Collegiate. Win. So I went there, the, I believe, the second half of my sophomore year and the first half of my junior year. And at that point, I was missing my girlfriend. Aww. And I went, you know what? I'm going back to East. And I he, did. Ladies, he's romantic. John is very romantic, <laughs> very happily married guy, but he is a romantic, loving husband uh, and father of three beautiful daughters. Well, the great thing about dating the girl I dated then was that I had some bad habits and I ran around a little too much no. and did things. And, and when we broke up, I thought I am going to be 100% totally honest with the next girl that I fall in love with. And that was Martina. And it really has benefited wow. us. You know, wow. it really has. Well, I think, uh, we learn from the people that we meet, and if you don't learn, you're an idiot. <laughs> I try not to interview idiots on my show, John, so just know that you passed a really high test to get into Trade Seekers and to be a guest on my show. So you, you, you're in high school now. We know you're healthy. We know you're yep. physically active. Yep. When did you first develop an interest in music? Well, I was a beetle nut from the word go. You know, you my, have, I believe, the, one of the finest collections oh, of Beatle memorabilia in the world, I, I think. I don't know which parent gave me this part of my personality, but I am an all-or-none person for sure. Yeah. And I loved, loved, and still love the Beatles and always have and always will. Yeah. I, uh, Growing up, we had a turntable in the living room. Yeah. You know, was we it had one a, of those things like my parents had where you, yeah, had, you flopped it down and yeah. the, you know, the speakers opened out? Well, similar to that, it was like a piece of furniture and yeah. there was a radio in there. It was walnut. And there was a turntable and you'd <laughs> yeah. have to lift up the lid of yeah, the console yeah, yeah. to see the turntable. And we'd listen to, you know, I listened to records. I loved music growing up. I just loved it. I was uh, 
I still say the 10 best years of music are 65 to 74 because we had not only the Beatles, the Stones, the whole Zeppelin British invasion. Yeah. Yes. Zeppelin and Motown. And it was just a great time. Dude, I, I, I think you can go 59 to 79 and yeah. just draw it yeah. right there. That would work. <laughs> that works. And the beauty of it is, back then, I really feel like music felt more important than it does today because we look to the to music to get our thumb on the pulse of what the hell's of going culture. on. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it's, it is still certainly a part of modern culture. And, and yeah. those younger people who are listening to this, I'm sure you think your music is the most important, the most influential. We were the same. I mean, when we were in our teens and 20s, music spoke to us. And, and those of you who know about Woodstock and you understand what an incredible event that was and a melding of so many different musicians and so many different musical styles, you know, where everybody joined together in peaceful group and listened to music. I mean, the world, if you think the world's in trouble now or tumult now, it's always been slightly a mess. The problems in the 60s are the same (laughs) as the problems today. Of course. I mean, there's, you know, unfortunately, there's been war. Unfortunately, there's been, you know, uh, just anything negative, racism, sexism, whatever. But music both helps you. I think music's a great healer. So I, I think Me music too. helps you deal with that. Yes. You know, if you're a sensitive soul or a depressive soul or introverted soul, which I am not, but if you're, if you're suffering, you know, you can escape through music. Yes. You know, and music will always take you back to the memory oh, to where you first God. heard it. Yes, it will. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I listen to songs now in my car and maybe I don't remember the first second I heard them, but I remember like you're talking about an old flame. I, I mean, I remember a high school dance, sure, you know, or, or just a moment in time where I got turned on to something. And music is, music is really, really, really important, and it heals. You know what's funny? I always thought music was the number one trigger for any memory or whatever. But according to an article I read, it's a sense of smell. Yeah, it's yeah. smell. That that yeah. brings back memories more vividly than possibly music. But I don't know. I because think bacon. With, with people <laughs> people in the music business, maybe music hits us just as hard or harder. Well, I, don't I mean, know. I don't know. I can't. I'm not well versed enough in this to actually describe it, but my husband was trying to explain like neurolinguistic programming to me and how people communicate and how some people are auditory and some people are visual. And he said to me, like, for example, when I talk, I tend to look up. I don't know what that means, but he knew and he explained it to me. And I think with music, when you're talking about music, and I agree with you, when you're talking about music and it triggering a memory, maybe those of us that work in music, maybe we're the sen- we're sensitive to it more so I than think, others. I think that's you know? absolutely right. And I don't think this is left brain, right brain, top brain. I think this is all over the brain. But yeah. yeah. Um, so well, I've had a theory forever that in the womb about maybe one-tenth of one percent of the population between hearing the heartbeat and the mom's voice and the blood flowing through the veins that somehow in our DNA we get to the point where we're not going to be happy unless we're working in music and and oh I love this. I you know I grew up in Wichita Kansas not exactly huge music scene in Wichita yes, exactly not <laughs> not exactly but however I had more passion for music than probably anything else and and I wasn't really a player. I took piano lessons for a couple of years. I was going to ask, what do you play? Piano, barely. Oh, you know, but M- me too. You know, I, I learned the the minuet and G and Furry Lee's. Nice. And, I know. think I learned Silent Night or yeah. something. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, 
But I never got around to Flight of the Bumblebee. I didn't stick with it long enough. I was a really active Dude, kid. that's really hard, actually. And I know it is. <laughs> I got the sheet music for it just to try to... But you had a piano growing up. I had a piano growing up. You had a stereo. Yes. You know what I mean? I think any anyone who's been robbed of music has seriously been robbed. Oh, I agree. You know, and, and I totally musical agree. freedom. I champion the rights of anyone to make music, listen to music buy music obviously some formats are better than others we'll talk tech later but but listen however you can get it listen to it you know if you're listening on your phone just listen wherever you can sergeant peppers was the first record that just i absolutely flipped over now i had heard some earlier beatles because you know but sergeant peppers came out when i was nine years old yeah you know the white album in 68 and i had the a turntable that had a neutral on yeah, it yeah, so yeah. I could spin the r- records backwards and all that and here turn, like, turn me on Debbin yeah turn, turn me on, on Debbin. Debbin you know yeah, yeah, yeah. And from uh, number nine revolution number, number nine. nine yeah <laughs> number nine backwards is turn me on Debbin uh, yeah listeners check that out do your research by yeah. the way we, we think Paul McCartney is the real Paul McCartney but we may <laughs> never know <laughs> you know uh, oh I knew all the clues there were hundreds oh I yeah mean, there were so there many were clues so many yeah, I, you know. I, I. It's funny that you say that because forty fives were another big part. Because when I was young and, and started actually buying records, you know, you could buy forty five for like a dollar. Oh yeah, you know, or two dollars. Oh no, and I, so I'm older than you, I think. Cause no, I'm older. They when were like sixty nine cents when yeah, we get yeah. them on sale. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So like a dollar. So I think I still remember the the you know I remember the Apple logo without question. But I think on the other side. Of number nine, which which was a B side, I think on the other side of that, God, what was on the other side? I do not remember. I'm gonna find out. Though. I don't think they ever had a 45 Revolution number nine on a 45, but the huge double double hit single was Hey Jude and Revolution, yes, the regular yes, version. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, yeah. you know there were so many. Um, Ooh, don't let me down. Maybe you're a rich man, and and hello goodbye. Yeah, hello goodbye. D- don't let me down was on the other side of something else. And get I'm blowing back. this by get the way. Back. Oh, was it get yeah, back? Yeah, yeah. Oh, see there you and go. Don't let me see, down. See, this is why John is here to answer my questions. Right. <laughs> because well, I'm a Beatle freak, and I cannot remember. So you're <laughs> so you're in high school. You love music. You're in Wichita, Kansas. You either have or about to break up with the girl who you. You know, this is probably before that. But how did you parlay? Now, did you go to college? Were your parents, did they want you to go to college? What was so, the story? my dad was teaching college, so naturally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah that you was go a really important thing. And, and parents, especially of of my, my parents' generation, you know, born in the 30s, let's yeah. say. College was a huge thing. It was very important. You Same know, for you me. have to get a real job. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, you know, right? An accountant or whatever. And if I had been any of those things, I would have had my toe on the trigger. I'll tell you right now because I, even though growing up, I never thought that you could actually make a living in music. I was okay. Let's let let me go back a little. <laughs> yeah, further. yeah, please. So as I. Got my own stereos. I mowed lawns and shoveled snow and threw papers and did everything else. <laughs> and uh, I got way into stereo gear. And I remember, you know, there was a a, a great stereo store called Space Age Stereo. Oh, yeah. We and, all had those stores yeah, in our town. Yeah, man. And I wanted a particular Pioneer receiver. And I wanted, uh, you know, these cost, these cost speakers. And I wanted... Uh, 
you know, a, a great needle. I had to remember have... like Boston acoustics and stuff. Yes, like that, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the needle, the cartridge, the needle for the you started to learn about your turntables, and you really oh, realized yeah. the difference between the cartridge. What was the famous maker? They don't make them anymore. Well, you, for a while. I had my dream cartridge. That was a Stanton Stanton. 441S, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Stanton. it was called. That's who made it. Had a little brush yeah. on the yeah, headstock. Kept the dust, yeah, kept yeah. the dust off the needle. Yeah, it was so cool. <laughs> and then, funnily enough, when I came to Nashville the first time with a friend of mine, I, w I met Denny Purcell, who was a mastering engineer, and he had a Stanton 441S, and I thought... Well, this guy makes a living with his ears. I must have really made the right choice yeah, with this cool, cartridge. I felt the, so good. Yeah, you get reinforcement. You're the cool kid. So you, so you. So what, I was into stereo gear. Yeah. And then I took a job at about sixteen or seventeen, parking cars in a garage for rich people. All right. Should you please go teach the valet at my restaurant last night? Oh, man, it's problematic. <laughs> you know what? I'll that later. <laughs> Driving in Nashville don't go very well together, <laughs> as you will discover if you ever come here. Um, but anyway, and I was working out in the garage, and the guy who would open the door for him when they went into the main building was a bass player named Dude Stewart. And Dude, my well, cousin, I had like, my cousin Dude. Yeah, I had I had like home stereo and or you know different magazines. He had mix. And REP, -E yes. yes, recording engineer and producer. Mm. And I got a hold of one of his magazines, and I started looking there, and I went, oh, my God, this is the shit. I love it. This is what I need to be around. Oh, I love and it. And I f just fell in love with all these different colored knobs and faders. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, you know what? I am going to get some of this gear and start learning how to use it. You know, You're I, Capricorn, right? Yes. Yeah, determined. Okay, I can tell you this. My older brother, Rick, he's the one who forged the way for my family and, and was a musician. He's a Capricorn, too. But so you, Hey, me and Jesus. You know, that's yeah. the way it goes. All right, I'm, your, no your problem. Your birthday's what, January 15th, right? Yes. Uh, Dave Grohl's January 14th. Yep. Paul Salvatore's February 15th, and I'm April 15th. Kid Rock it's is January 15th. 17th, I Oh, there think. you go. Yeah. There you go. So you're, you're figuring it out. You're like, I'm going to figure out a way. I fell in love with looking at these EQs and little mixing boards and, and all this, this gear. And I don't know why I'm so gear queer, but I am. I am. I love gear. Yeah. Well, it's like jewelry. It's like collecting fine art, honestly. Right. I, I, I understand it. I, I don't have much gear, even though I manage recording studio, but I get it. I get collecting, cherishing, and protecting Vintage gear. Oh, yeah. I totally get it. Yeah, it's so funny. So, but I, I, have, I have to ask, though. So, so you, you love music and you're learning about gear and you get turned on and you meet this guy that's a masking guy. But how did all of that come into like, I'm going to figure out a way to make a living with it? You know, that's a hell of a good question because I <laughs> you don't. You still don't know? <laughs> I really don't know. But what I know is that I, I went. By this time, I'm in college. I'm probably 19 or 20. And I went to the bank. I put together a big loan proposal because I wanted to buy and start a studio in Wichita, Kansas. And thank God they said no because <laughs> I'd still be there trying to struggle through it. You right, know, right, right. It's just not. But a recording studio or a rehearsal studio? A recording studio. Oh, really? That's what I wanted. I had to be involved in music. I just felt like. This is really, really important. If my only contribution is even putting together a studio where some hit records are made, 
Well, that's good well, enough for I me. I can say you've certainly done that, John. Thank God we have. Black and I've amazing. even got to engineer some of them, which is... John's, John is downplaying his skills. He's a really yeah. talented engineer, both live sound, <laughs> front of house, monitor mixer. This guy's done it all. He's one of the few people I know that was a live sound guy that made the transition into studio engineering and still yes. does both, yes. who's good at both. Uh, usually you pick one both. or the other. I love that's un- that's unusual too. I have mad respect for for sound reinforcement. We just call it live sound, by the way, people. I have mad respect for that because there is no going back and fixing it, baby, in the middle of the no, performance. That show is going to happen tonight. <laughs> yeah, and you're and you're going to figure it out. And if shit is breaking, you're going to figure it out. This might point to why John has gear, you know, love. He calls it gear queer because you got to have spares. Yes, you do, especially yeah. on the road. And I really grew up more as a live guy than a studio guy. So you don't get the lungs. The, the what's that? You don't. No, get the lungs. they laughed me out of the place. I oh. mean, it was hilarious in a way. <laughs> so I went to the campus credit union at Wichita State. I borrowed six thousand bucks, and this was probably nineteen seventy nine. Somewhere a lot of money, in dude. there. Nineteen eighty, you know, I might have been twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, I was still going to school, and I was working full time while I was going to school. So you were driving cars still, or no? Well, I was parking cars, but then when I hit eighteen, a buddy of mine called me and said, "Hey, you, there's this new. It's a meat plant, believe it or not, mm. not a kill floor, but a processing meat plant, and they need people." Actually, what really happened was <laughs> he, he called me and said, some people are on strike against a certain union right uh, grocery store. I don't know if it was Safeway or who, but the meat cutters were on strike. And I got hired to wear a sign that said on strike local 340, I think it was. Oh, I love it. And I'd walk up and down in front of this thing for eight bucks an hour or whatever Just it was back money. then. Yeah, it was good money. Yeah. Then Vessi T. Lee, who was the union rep guy that would drive by and check on you every now and then, make sure you're walking and doing your job. Right. He told me, hey, they're looking for people over at Safeway Meat Processing if you want to find a you know a better paying job yet. And I said, cool. Yeah. And, and I go, who runs the place? And he goes, a guy named Don Spates. So I, I looked up Don Spates in the phone book. And sure enough, there there was one. Oh, well. So I call the number, and he answers, and I go, Mr. Spates? And he goes, yes. I go, this is John McBride. I want to come work at Safeway Meat Processing. He goes, well, how'd you get my number? I go, I looked it up in the phone book. He goes, come on in. <laughs> I got yeah, hired. A little bit of initiative, right? <laughs> God, please, everybody listening, learn from this. Take a little bit of initiative. Because he spelled it S-P-E-I-G-H-T-S. Unusual. It, it, a, an odd spelling. And that is an odd spelling. I couldn't find an S-P-A-T-E-S, so I just... Kept looking. Yeah, I kept looking. Oh. So anyway, I ended up getting hired there. So I was working there full time, and I was going to school around it yep. and in the meantime i go what were you studying in college just basic i was stuff? chemistry major i never knew that i love chemistry i do too i do john i has love great, numbers i have great chemistry with john hey but yeah <laughs> no doubt that's important too i wish we could define that better yeah. you know oh chemistry is amazing wow. yeah well it made sense to me because you put these two things together and you add heat or water and or whatever or don't react. and you yeah. know what's going to happen and it's ah, kind of great because amazing. life isn't that way very often you know
A direct, yeah, a direct result. Yes. Direct yeah. result. So you're going to school. You go to work at the, for Don's, Don's Bates? Yeah. Who we love to study. That Safeway right. Meat Processing. Safeway Meat Processing. Yeah, the same store I think we were picketing. Picketing. Yeah, okay. Did whatever. you fix the sound system at the Safeway? And apparently <laughs> they worked out all their problems. Thank and you, that glad. stopped. That's yeah, right. thank okay. God. Thank you. And so now I've, I'm falling in love with this pro audio gear, and I go and I borrow six grand, and I buy two speakers, a 12-channel mixer, a stereo 10-band EQ, a 100-foot snake, which at the time was long enough because yep. you're in clubs, yep. a 421 and an SM58. And I went around to the bars in Wichita, and I put up the little pull tab thing where you get a piece of paper and you take scissors. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you, you write your, your phone number yeah. on every little piece of paper, and then people can tear one oh, off like and call Like a little bulletin you. board, right? Oh, my God, I love this. And uh, put PA for rent. And, Dude, this is genius. And the phone rang. Grassroots marketing people, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, laugh, laugh, but it only takes one phone call to and get a that's, gig. And, and it happened. A guy named John Salem called me. And John, who I had no idea at the time, but he went on to play for Steve Earle and, oh, wow. and tour with a bunch of people. Oh, wow. And he's still in Wichita, but he's been active in music forever and he's a great key player amazing and just a great producer and a just a great guy and, and he, he needed you to set up a pa for for live for a band or? he was working with called the bam putts the band putts bam b-a-m-p-o-t-s one word okay bam, bam putts and fuck if i know what that terrible means. name oh, yeah, whatever. what happened to bam putts well we, we don't know they ended up <laughs> they they I don't know that they got a record deal, but they made an album, and Kim Fowley was oh, I love involved. Him. Those of you who don't know who Kim Fowley is, we first of all had a lot to do with a lot of songs that were hits back in the '60s and late '50s, the Monster Mash, et cetera, in the '70s. But he also discovered the Runaways. And the Runaways, absolutely. Yeah. I had the honor to meet Kim. I've had lunch with him quite a few times before he passed, and he always was impeccably dressed. He kind of looked a little bit like Boris Karloff in his later years. But he always wore this really like. <laughs> Tight brown suit, and we would just sit and bullshit. He was actually incredibly fascinating. Yeah, amazing guy. But anyway, I, n I never met him, but they had he gone cool, to LA actually. and made this record. And the Bampots were two sisters, um, Sh Sherry and Lori. And John ended up marrying Lori. Oh wow! John Salem, and Lori was a bass player, and Sherry was a singer, and. Um, Conrad Stoll's play guitar, who's been a dear friend forever, Amazing. and a guy named Phil Padilla, Padilla was the drummer at at the at that point, and we I started taking MPA, and I didn't have monitors, so there was a music store in Wichita that would rent Yamaha twenty one fifteens for five bucks a day. Oh wow! And I'd rent gear from big dudes so no wedges or anything you just no i rented them oh, and right. okay, okay. put them in and you know didn't have eq on them it was just crazy it was crazy but it must have worked he must have been able to get done what john needed it worked out and yeah. and so the phone started ringing more a friend of my brother's they were in a fraternity i had dropped out of college after about well after about the time i was 23 and i'm killing myself because I'm working full-time, yeah. I'm going to school part-time, and I then I'm it. in the clubs at night. Yeah. 
a friend of my brothers who were both my younger brothers who were in a fraternity, a guy named Brad Wathney, was an incredible carpenter, incredible. This guy, unbelievable. He could look at a picture of something and he could build it. Like a fine cabinet maker. Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Brad and I became friends and he started, he was building his own PA speakers. So we, I went to a guy, oh God, this is so crazy. I haven't thought of this in years. But I went to a guy named Brock Jabara at Superior Sound in Wichita. That's where I had been buying a lot of my audio gear. Right. And Brock gave us a design for a subwoofer cabinet, a single 18, okay. it was. And the 18 proper, means 18 inches. 18 inch speaker, yeah. yep. yep. And uh, he told us how to build it properly, embrace it properly, import it properly. Like insulation And insulate it, it yeah, properly, okay. everything. We had all that going on. I still remember the itch of that insulation. Oh, yeah, the fiberglass. On your arms, It's especially <laughs> when you're sweaty, it's great. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so we, I started, every penny I made went back into more gear, as usual. And um, after- What was the name of the company? Well, I ended up naming it MD Systems, and it was just modular design. And don't ask me where I got that name. It's kind of weird. There was also an engineer who was really great that I worked with named Greg Delancey. And I thought, well, McBride Delancey, MD, and modular design. You know, it all works together. And that's why I named it that. And that's where it started in Wichita around 1980, I'll guess. And um, after about three, four years, I had put together two full club systems and a third monitor rig. Now, did you ever install systems into venues? Nope. I I never got into the install side. I don't blame you, but yeah. It's another nightmare. Is requires a little more physics than I probably had experienced at the time, Mm -hmm. and I just never really cared about that. I liked working with rock bands. Yeah. And having a great kick and there sound. Were no, and there were enough venues. I mean, yes, there were enough bars. Big, yeah, it's a big enough city, big yeah. enough live music. And there was a circuit even in Kansas. I mean, you know, there Stylistically, were, what kind of music was predominant then? Pretty much. Rock and roll? Rock and roll. Got yeah. It. And I, that's what I grew up on. That's what I love. But I ended up doing some country work also. Right. Because they need PA too. And, you know, and you discover at a certain point that Great country music is great music. Absolutely. There's bad country. There's great country. There's great rock. There's some real shitty rock. There's you know? bad pop. There's great jazz. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's bad jazz. You yeah. know, it's it's so funny, but it really made me appreciate different genres of music for sure. As, as someone who ran live sound, I mean, obviously, the better the player, the easier your job is. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you're you're starting to build up your clientele and you're going to different clubs and stuff like that and doing different genres, you're meeting more and more people and you're becoming the guy. Right. Like call MD, call MD Sound. They're amazing, right? Yeah. Did you end up having people work for you or anything like that? Yes, I had a rate. I ended up being able to hire a couple of people, even though I could hardly afford it and they didn't make enough money and everything else. But you need help on this kind of thing. And after I put together two club systems... I knew we had enough PA to do a small concert, you know. And so we started doing things at different festivals or we'd go to Tulsa and do this thousand-seat rock club called The Great Escape, I think it was. Who's our favorite person from Oklahoma? Leon Russell. Oh, well, I'll never argue with that. One of them, one of them, one of our favorite people. Yeah, he is, he is. (laughs) 
Anyway, so I just kept building gear, and I thought, you know, if I could get a hold of like seventy-five grand, and that's a lot back then. That's a lot now. I could have a concert system that we could do. We could make maybe five hundred bucks in one day. It'd be unbelievable, you know. Also, a lot of money. Still. So <laughs> I went to the bank, and they basically said no. They said you'll have to go through the SBA to get a loan like that here. Oh, man. Because it's not exactly a production-oriented city for right. music, you right. know. Right, and, and And I'm sure there was a venue or, or of some sort. The Cotillion Ballroom. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I 20- actually, actually, anybody who ever listened to this podcast, you can write me a letter and tell me what a cotillion is, because I grew up in Charleston, and I know what a cotillion is. Yes, so that's funny, is. the cotillion ballroom. So this is where the debutantes, yes. or the people would come out, fraternities, yeah. sororities, and the cotillion was the dances, yes. right? Yeah. Well, have- the cotillion ballroom was designed for, it had 2,200 capacity, and the owners booked shows all the time. Okay, so cool. all the time. this place sounds awesome. And there wasn't any PA installed there, so they always needed a rig. And I did maybe four or five hundred shows. What at the are Cotillion. some of the artists that played at this place? Oh my God, I did, believe it or not, at the Cotillion, I did Metallica. I love this. Rat. A lot of heavy metal, Armored Saint, Halloween, um, Wasp. You know, nice. all these different... That time, of that time. And then they do a lot of country shows. I did David Allen Coe. Oh, wow. I did... Um, I don't. I never did Hank Jr. there. Uh, but I also did James Brown. Oh, I love it. I did a lot of jazz. Dude, and James Dying. Brown wouldn't have been easy because that is a big crew. Oh, it is. And you know what their writer said for the James Brown show? No. Because Richard Leslie, the guy that owned the Cotillion yeah. when I was growing up, he'd get the writer in. And I'd have him fax me the writer back when we had that fax paper oh, yeah. that if it gets hot, it turns black. Yeah, you know? yeah, it turns, yeah. yeah it turns purple black. Yeah. And the, here was the writer for James Brown. Production. One PA, one lights. I love that. That was it. I thought you were going to tell me it was something crazy like blue M&Ms or something. No, no. <laughs> one PA, one lights. So I bring pretty much everything I have. I, I had a 24 by 8 monitor desk. I could get eight separate mixes. Did you build this desk? No, I bought it. It was a well. I got the loan. I'll tell you about the loan in a minute. But I just brought everything we had, and sixteen people were on stage. Yeah, big crew. James Brown were seemed to be as happy as they could be, and I I just it blew my mind. Dude, just touring pros. I'm doing monitors, and I'm staring at James Brown. It makes no sense. I I, love it. It was amazing. You know, didn't Jason mess around? Oh, I know. We did Ray Charles. Oh, we amazing. did. Oh my God, the Yellow Jackets. David Sanborn. Oh, I love the Yellow Jackets. Yeah. I love Jimmy Haslip. It He's was a mutual great friend. music. There was such a, there was really a market there. I mean, dude, I love. So we got Ray bands kind of on their way up and on their way down. Maybe. Got it right. Oh, that makes sense. You know, BTO. Uh, that was Bachman Turner Overdrive and Steppenwolf. Now Steppenwolf. Dude, I love Steppenwolf. That turned into my first tour because dude, fourth grade for me, Steppenwolf. John K. loved our monitors. He's amazing. Now, the reason he loved our monitors is because they were big, double 15 with a two-inch driver. So you got to run sound for Steppenwolf and hear yeah. Born to be Wild live. Every night. While you were running sound. Yeah. Dude, I love that song. Yeah. And I went out and did monitors when we went out on tour together. But getting the loan, here's the funny <laughs> part. So I put together all the paperwork through the SBA. Right. My loan application's two inches thick. It's insane. 
Yeah. And I get a call. I turn it in, and a month later, the bank calls and goes, we can do the loan. We're going to approve it. I said, okay. And they go, with one condition. Your parents have to put their house up for collateral. Holy crap. Their house was worth about 75 grand. And I thought, why would we go through this? And I thought, how asinine. I'll never, you know, I mean, I didn't even know if I should bring it up, you know, because yeah. it's just ridiculous, oh. you know. But I go home and I tell my mom and dad, well, they said they do the loan, but they want the house for collateral. And I know that's insane and blah, blah, blah. And my parents go, sure, we'll do it. See, this is what I am talking about with be good to your parents. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, whenever I tell that story around my kids, I go, I'm not as fucking crazy as your grandparents. Yeah, guess what? So I'm don't not think, putting the house up. Yeah, not yeah. Not to mention, I think it's already on the studio loan. But whatever. <laughs> there you anyway. go. Anyway. So but I love, I, that they the I love that they supported it. They did. But they had seen that you'd been making a go of it. Oh, yeah. And they knew I wasn't lazy. And the, yeah. Yeah. And let me tell you, you will work some overtime if you think about your parents being homeless. Oh, my God. Homeless, being homeless. Know? Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Do you have enough Dr. Pepper? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dude, this is so, I'm learning so much that I didn't know. This is incredible. Now, first of all, I'm still stuck on you doing Steppenwolf because I love Steppenwolf. Oh, John Kay and Eric. Dude, Thickest the, Thieves. I love dude, the guy. I'm actually a fangirl right now. I'm a huge fan. In 1987, now we first went out on tour together in 83 or 4, 84 I think it was, and it was Steppenwolf with the Guess Who opening. Love the Guess Who. And we were doing Sheds and we and were so doing- And so was Burton Cummings for Guess Who? Yeah, but oh. he wasn't with him at that point. Okay. But he was- I'm sure it was a great scene. In the Himalayas worshiping an ashtray yes. or something. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he was doing. <laughs> But oh, I, I wish he would have been there because I love that guy's voice. But the other oh, singer must have been great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. the I think Jim Kale, the bass player, was an original member. Gary, the drummer, joined us for a, one or two tours. Was you it know? Grant Funk or Guess Who did No Sugar Tonight? That was Guess Who. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. In like 1970, the Guess Who might have sold more records than any other act in America. Huge. It yeah. was crazy. Yeah, and they were way. Canadian, but it yeah. didn't matter. We're, we're okay with Canadians. American Woman, No Sugar Tonight, you know. Uh, Dude, so good. Oh, God. Dude, I love Hand Guess Me Who. Down World, that was one of my favorites. They, they were a great That's band. That's a great song. Great songs, great band. But this is the thing that no one ever talks about is it is a huge responsibility to not blow it. And that's true of the studio, obviously, but really true. I said earlier, you're doing live sound. There is no go back and redo no, that. You it's, better be good. Yeah. Your shit has to be tight. Yes. And John, the people that work for you and you yourself, I'm sure on those gigs, oh. you are just, and it's hard being on the road. The two or three crew I had out there, we could set up a rig on the roof of the building if you wanted it. We would do it. I'll tell you that much. We didn't yeah. care. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it takes. That's the attitude, you know? Yeah. We're here and not scared of work. and Dude, man. I love it. I love it. So MD has now really developed a reputation. It actually started doing okay. It wow. was crazy. You're so, making the payments on the loan. <laughs> yeah, I'm making the payments on the loan. Now, 84, we toured with Steppenwolf, the guess who? 85, it was Steppenwolf, Alvin Lee, and Roger McGuinn. Oh, my God. No, that was 86. 85 was more Steppenwolf, guess who? Well, 86 awesome. was... Steppenwolf, Alvin Lee, Roger McGuinn, and that for some reason wasn't selling tickets, and or maybe it was it. God, you know what? It could have what? been eighty-seven, whatever it was. But the tour canceled four weeks into a 
six-month tour. Oh, crap. And I, of course, had borrowed more money to oh, buy better crap. gear. And, you know, I'm always borrowing more money anytime I can. <laughs> and all of a sudden, with one day's notice, the tour ends. Oh, and no. I'm not getting any compensation. Nothing to bake on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, after that. So that yeah, started. Yeah, there's no kind of contract, by the way. John did not get paid for the other six months. <laughs> yeah, no. And man, that was a tailspin that was hard to handle. But I found a way, you know. I oh my necessity God. is the mother of invention, That's and a that fact. is what that means. You either put on your big boy pants and yep. figure it out, and or we never hear from you do. again. <laughs> now, in January of '87 is also when I met Martina. Okay, so we're going to get to that story because I'm sure it's tied into live sound. So now you you're on the tailspin. The tour is canceled. But let you me go tell you the good talk? news about okay. <laughs> about about. Eighty-seven to ninety or ninety-one. Okay, okay, okay. Um, we continued to get small tours, and we do them, and we did one-offs, and we did shows at the Cotillion, and we did shows at the Wichita River Festival. So you're still or, busy. Yeah, we still survived. Yeah, somehow. And in '89, I get called from a, a guy I knew, kind of named Rick Crabtree, who was the production manager for Ricky Van Shelton. Okay, I had met him at the Kansas State Fair in Hutchinson, Kansas, and talked to him while he was, you know, right before he was going to mix hey, the show. Hey, State Fairs are crucial, man. I know a lot of bands that made it at State Fairs. Oh, man. A lot. Yeah, that was the big time, I thought. Yeah. And so Rick, I had given him my card and said, hey, if you ever do any shows around Kansas or Oklahoma or Missouri, whatever, we'd love to be able to cover it for you. Nice. And Rick called me in 1989 and said, I've got... Three shows with Ricky as the headliner. The middle act is a guy named Clint Black, and the opening act is a guy named Garth Brooks. Oh, yeah. And so this is 89. This was— uh, And you, and they're not famous yet. No, they're, they're Clint and Garth's albums had come out in May of 89. Oh, okay. I believe. Well, Clint initially had huge success, five number ones in a row. Right. Garth's first single was like number seven, maybe much too young to fill this damn old. <laughs> His second single, um, um, I like that song, <laughs> "The Dance," which oh. went to number one. Anyway, so Garth didn't have any crew out. We go to do these three baseball stadiums with, and not professional baseball stadiums, more college size, okay, you know, okay. smaller. And we played Stillwater, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and. Somewhere in Arkansas, Jonesboro, Arkansas. And that was September 28, 29, and 30 of 1989. Well, it's just. It, it's it, your life. It, yeah. it, you know, it mattered. I couldn't tell you my password that I set last week, but I can tell you my yeah, phone number yeah, when I, I was I, eight. I can relate. You know, whatever. Anyway, so. So. By. On, on December 31st of 1989, my wife and I. Left Nash left Wichita and moved to Nashville for a couple of reasons. One, I know I'm going to get more work for the sound company. And two, she wanted to be a country singer. And if we're going to go for it, let's go for it. But we survived through the 80s. It's an unstoppable duo, by the way. In 87, in January, I met Martina, who rented a little room I had at my sound company. It was a small rehearsal room. Didn't she have like a Volkswagen? 
She had sorry. an old Dodge. Uh, oh, okay. I thought it was a Volkswagen where, where she was trying to get it and the bandmates didn't show up for rehearsal or some oh, such nonsense. No, she, oh, here's, how, <laughs> here's how much this band had it together. It was all older guys. She was probably 20 years old at the time when I met her. Yeah, she would have been 20. And uh, she had to go pick them all up. Because none of them had a car. See, what, what is happening in this picture where a 20-year-old girl who's a singer <laughs> got to pick up the guys that are actually older and actual players to get them to go to rehearsal? Poor thing. And that band never made it out of the rehearsal room. I bet they are kicking it, themselves right now. But Martina and I met, and we fell in love, and we got married. There you go. There you go. And here's what happened. We started dating. Was it her voice? And she's just you know, cute, it's as, funny she's cute as can be. But. I went and set up the monitors for him the first day of rehearsal. Right. And I heard her voice through, I think it was a Yamaha 2115. And it blew my mind. It was Yeah, she's that a great good, singer. You know, and they, they were her wedges because we, had, we were building our own wedges by that time. And I offered. I but said, you had never known each other prior. No. You both grew up in Wichita? No, she grew up on a farm about 90 miles from Wichita. Okay. But she'd been living in Wichita for a couple of years, singing in clubs, doing covers and stuff. Trying to get it going. And since oh. I didn't work in those particular clubs, I didn't know her. I'd heard about her, but vaguely. you know. But her name wasn't McBride yet. No, Martina Schiff. <laughs> oh, gotcha, Yes, gotcha. a nice German name there. There you go. And uh, she could sing. And you hear the truth. She can definitely sing. When you do monitors, you kind of hear the truth. Good, bad, or indifferent. Dude, that is, uh, that is the truth. So anyway, the band never made it out of the rehearsal room, but she and I hit it off, and we started dating in April of 87, April 15th. My birthday. Yes, that Sweet. was our, the day we started dating. Oh, I love that. May 15th, a month later, we got engaged, and we set it a year ahead. Did you get so, a loan from the bank to buy the ring? Yes. <laughs> You no, did? no, actually, I had a American Express card, yes. and I put it on the card. But since we lost that tour in 87 and we were so broke, oh, I ended up getting the card taken away from me. It got canceled by <laughs> we American still had Express, the ring. but we still had the ring. <laughs> and eventually I got them paid off. Thank I've you, I've done God. stuff like that, too, but trust me. And that, man, American Express was tough, too. They would call me at it's 6 the only card I have now. Mr. McBride. <laughs> Dude, those of you who don't How know, do you sleep? Do you remember people when they were able to guilt you like that? Because yes. I remember collectors, a bill collectors calling me and going like, this isn't going to just go away. This is going to follow you for the rest of your life. And I'm like, Jesus. I know. I know. <laughs> they can't do that anymore, thank God. But still, yeah, pretty gnarly. <laughs> so so you, you got the ring. You got the girl. We, we got engaged. <laughs> we set it a year ahead. I lost the tour. Ooh. We were pretty broke. But... So I, I was so broke, I was living at my warehouse. Yeah. Now, after Martina had rented the rehearsal room and the band didn't work out, she went back to singing in clubs, doing covers and what have you. And when she'd get off work at 2 a.m., she'd come to the warehouse because she knew I was there because that's where I slept. Aww. And I'm, we're both pretty nocturnal. So, yeah, yeah. you know, she'd come by and we'd listen to music or talk or hang out or Call somebody in England, you know, <laughs> just for it. fun. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I remember, it's the weirdest memory you have. <laughs> and um, now, and, and, and she asked me to marry her. That's how it worked. I always yeah. say that she didn't quite agree, but I, I you know, I, <laughs> I know you both, and I know you to be very honest and true, and I'm willing to bet that that's probably what happened. Well, here's what happened. <laughs> I've been hinting around about this. 
Yeah. And I think she was well aware that you wanted to marry the her. wheels were turning. Yeah. And one night I picked her up from the fireside where she had just sang for four hours. And we were driving. And we stopped at this little school not too far from where we lived, where I went to grade school. And um, we were back there and talking. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of, well, you know. And she goes, isn't there something you want to ask me? <laughs> I said, yes, there is. Will you marry me? Aww. And with And she said yes. And about a minute and a half later, tap, tap, tap on the car window. A cop. A cop. Oh, yeah. Ma'am, are you okay? Yeah, I just got engaged. He goes, well, <laughs> congratulations. So the first person to congratulate us was the Wichita Police Department. We love this. Cop, we love and this. And I love that. Yeah. Oh, I that's do. a great. That's the greatest story. So, so the tour is canceled. You and Martina are great. Everything's rocking. You're starving, but you're figuring it out. What pulled you out of that? Slump? Oh my God! Or was there any one thing, or was it you just know? A series, a series of things? So in December of '89, well, we're still. We're hanging in there, but yeah. it's tight. Yeah. I mean, our budget per month, we needed $914 a month to pay rent, put 25 in savings, cover food, cover gas, cover everything. This is a partnership from day 914 one. $914 bucks a month. That's what our overhead was back then. <laughs> I wish it was so now. 914 an hour, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, it's enough. Yeah. And um, so... In the fall of 90, I decided to grow a pair again, and I go back to the bank, or in the fall of 89, and I go, I want to borrow $90,000. We're going to move to Nashville. My wife is going to get a record deal, and this money will help tide over the sound company until I get busier and busier and busier. For, for those of you worshiping ashtrays and ashrams and Tibet or whatever, there's also a thing that John and I would say, and it's like, you you know, you, you realize your dreams. You, you put it out there, whatever. You got to go for it, yeah. man. And I went to one of the most conservative banks in Wichita, First National Bank, and they must have had some program because they go, we'll do it. Because they know they're going to get it one way or the other. And I thought, you have got to be out of your mind. But they did it. What about your parents' house? Was it up on? It again? was still on collateral on the other loan. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it wasn't even collateral on the new loan. I think they must have had some program where we need to just give away some money or yeah, something. Yeah, right, yeah, right, They we were look, laundering we money for National Bank. You know, something, yeah. <laughs> So a guy named Dean Becker, that was my banker. We love this guy. And, oh, unbelievable. I kept in touch with him over the years. You oh, yeah. Because shortly after moving to Nashville, now, it's crazy that we moved there basically January 1st of 1990. We knew no one. I knew one guy, a guy named Kevin Lamb. He worked for Alabama's publishing company. Yeah. But I knew him through John Kay. And... We get to Nashville, January 1st of 1990, you know, maybe a But couple... you had worked with Clint Black, and you had worked with Garth yeah, Pryor. Yeah, yeah, Any yeah. contacts through there? But, or... you know, and, and... No one close. I told Garth we were moving to Nashville, and I was getting a warehouse. And I had a warehouse lined up when we got there, and we had a little du lived in a little duplex in Donaldson, which is a suburb of yeah. Nashville. Yeah. And uh, 
I call Garth and I go, dude, if you want, you guys want to come over and practice, I won't charge you. You know, I'll set up monitors and all that. This is the good. So he'd come over and they'd practice in the warehouse and I'd run monitors and, you know. Just have fun. Oh, yeah. It was great. It was fun. Yeah. And any time that Garth could get my sound company hired to do sound at one of his shows, he'd recommend us. Oh, that's good. Or he'd, he'd call me and go, dude. We have a show in West Virginia on Friday, and it pays fifteen hundred. Now I had to truck it. Oh, I had to pay the fuel. That's a money loser. So I so I got a semi license, and I drove the semi. So, I, so you I could can drive a semi. The, yeah. Does that yeah. mean you're a teamster? How's that work? No. No, it's just a CDL. You need a certified driver's license, a Class A back. How then. much do we love the truckers? Oh, now all of them. Gotta have it. God bless them. Yes. Yeah. Don't oh, piss man. off the truckers. No kidding. <laughs> they So I would drive the truck, then I'd set up all day, tear Is down. Is that a money loser, or did you break even? You know, I'd make a couple hundred bucks. Oh, wow. Usually. Because wow. I had to pay at least one other person to go with me right. to help set up everything. And, you know, I'd do monitors, and they'd babysit front of house. Cause... Now, did you rent this big semi? Where'd you yeah, get it? No, oh. I bought one. I, I had bought one in Wichita. Dude, because... how much is a semi? Well, this was a way, way used old semi. Okay. Yeah, the first one I bought didn't even have a sleeper or anything. Okay, okay. It was like a yard dog, they called it. <laughs> yeah. and, and But you know what? It would get our gear to the cotillion. Yeah. It would get our gear to downtown. Oh, wow. It would get our gear to this Tulsa. This is amazing. <laughs> It was crazy, and I bought a forty-foot trailer. Oh my god! This is just I, this sounds like madness, but it's also you got to follow your bliss, man. Yeah, you know, I probably paid five grand for the truck. Wow! You know, I mean, and that's about what it was worth. So you do the show in West Virginia. So yeah. so, I'd go do a show for him wherever, whenever. Then. He was starting to get attention. This is 1990. Right. And Y'all can come tell us when we hit like 45 minutes, by the way. Oh, uh, we have, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't care. Or whatever. If uh, Paula's starving or whatever, she can come in here. Um, so in the, in the... So his career is building and you're friends. Yes. And in the summer of 90, Garth calls me and says, John, can I hire you to do monitors? I go, dude, I, I'd have to charge you so much because my payments on the gear and the loans i have it's like you know it's crazy two grand a month or something you know and i go i'd have to make like 1500 a week or something and he goes oh i could never afford that and i go i know man i hate it but you know and uh maybe my payments were four thousand about that time anyway they were high enough yeah but i did go out for three weeks in august of 1990 and ran monitors for Garth and the band for three weeks, then helped him get a new monitor guy, because, or, you know, a monitor guy that could work for the money he could afford at the time. At the you time. Know? Now, what was now, Martina doing? At that time, she was waitressing and also singing demos. Gotcha. For, I think, 25 bucks a song or oh, something wow. like that. Oh. But you know what? We were okay. We were, we were getting by, yeah. you know? Our... Overhead in Nashville went up to probably eleven hundred a month because rent was a little higher. Right. But everything else, you know, we you didn't have a car payment. We didn't have this. We didn't have that. You know. 
I love it. Oh, 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 it was That's crazy great. when I think about it. At any time up to probably last year, if you'd have looked at any accountant would have looked at my books or a lawyer, they'd have gone, shut it down while you can before <laughs> it, you know, I don't know. Well, and these are only things you, I mean, it's not that you have to be young because I don't want to discourage anyone who's older from doing anything that they want to do, but you need the the blind faith of youth. Yeah, but I wasn't that young at that time. How old are you now? 30? It's 1990, so I'm 30. Yeah, I was 31. I was 31. Know? Yeah. No. Yeah, and then 32 shortly Brian, after we moved, after we got there. <laughs> but within a year and a half of moving to Nashville, Martina had a record deal, and I was production manager for Garth Brooks. Wow. And I thought only in the fucking movies does this happen. But in my now, life, it, now, re- it happened for so Because now Garth is, is so huge. Now he's huge. Yeah, now he's huge. And, and Martina's doing her thing. She gets a record deal. Yep. T- was there a story? You got to tell me a story. Like, I, I could be wrong here, and I'll edit it out if it's bullshit. But was there a story that she was working the merch table or something with well, you? Well, here's with what Garth? happened in 91. Okay. In okay. 91, now the fall of 90 is when the dance came out. And then that was followed by Friends in Low Places. Okay. It was a one-two punch from hell. And Garth put on such a great show. and Sweet guy. Oh, incredibly generous, loyal, unbelievable guy. Awesome. I can't say enough good about this guy. He, um, he hired me as production manager in January of 91. And we went out and did 100 shows or something with him and Trisha. Yeah. Trisha was opening for yeah. him. And... Um, I called Crom, the T-shirt guy, and said, hey, is there any way my wife could come out and work the merch table yeah, you don't with, want to be a part with your crew? Because they had four or five merch people because Garth was selling T-shirts like it was going out of style. Right, right. So in 91, Martina came out and sold shirts for Garth all year so we could be together, Aww. even though we didn't even ride the same bus. Aww. But we were together at the gig. Oh, I love And it. while I was... I had a lot of responsibility. I, I promise you, I found time to hang out with her. Of course, you know? of course. And I'm so glad we did because it was just better. A magical you know? time. Well, and it probably you would have been worried about each other. And in the in in the fall of '91, Martina had gotten a record deal, May 15th again. All the 15th. We love these 15th. Yep. Of uh, of '91, and then her first album came out. I'm not kidding. I think it was May 15th of 92. Oh, my God. In the fall of 91, Garth calls one one night, and he just goes, hey, could you and Martina come by? And I go, sure, man. So we went over to his house, and I'm not sure where his wife was or what the deal was at the time, but we were just sitting around the pool talking. Yeah. And he asked Martina about the record deal, and she goes, oh, yeah, it's going great. We're making this record. He goes, sing something, you know? And she sang a little piece of a song. I think it was When You Were Old, which is a Gretchen Peters song, which will rip your heart out. Oh, it's God. great. And she sings four or five lines, and Garth goes, that's going to be an easy record to make. You don't need a band, you know. I mean, he goes, <laughs> it's a, it sounds just right with just you singing it. And he goes, Martina, I got a favor to ask you. Would you open the tour for me in 93? Oh, I love him. And she goes, I really need to think about it. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Dude, I love this. So I, We talk about the people that you meet along your way and what a difference they make in your life. And dude, this is one of them. It's this big, big life changes. 
working for Garth. Okay, I went to Garth in 91. No, in 90, when he said, I'm going to hire you as production manager. And I said, well, you're outgrowing me as a sound company. So you can either lend me the money to build this company up. Or we can go with the biggies like Claire or Shoko at the time or whoever. And he goes, man, I'll lend you the money. Jesus. So he lent me three hundred and fifty grand. I Holy think it was. Mother. Oh, it's crazy. I love this story. And we built a PA that could actually hang from the ceiling as opposed to ground stack. Right, of course. Because up to through ninety, we were just ground stacked pretty yeah. much. So it, it's a blur. <laughs> Is it still called MD? No, it oh. no. And then okay, it was up till nineteen ninety seven. Okay. In 1996, Troy Clare got a hold of me from Clare Brothers. Oh, yeah. The biggest sound company on I'm earth. I'm highly aware. And, the, I mean, just the best. Yeah. I don't know what else Absolutely. to say. And he wanted to buy my company, primarily because they wanted that Garth Brooks tour. Yeah, they wanted I your know. clients. Yes. Yeah, they wanted your clients. Yeah, and we had a few others. We did a lot of work with Charlie Daniels. No way. Different people. Still some with Ricky Van Shelton and a few others, you know, but... Um, so you sold it in name uh, only, or you sold it and you sit on the board, I think? No, right? I, I sold it, and I remained active there. Okay. I just burped, sorry. For the next five years. And, uh, and so to did, this day, did you have to I'm work still for active. Them? Did you have to work for Clara Brothers, or you, were, you had well, your I own did. division? Uh, no. It's the John it, McBride division. It was the Nashville shop now. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Because Clara tried to start. A branch of Claire in Nashville starting in about 95, and it did not work out. And they were going to get ready to just pack it in and mm. have it all come back to live. It's all about who you know. And that's about the time that Troy and I did our deal. So the Nashville shop all of a sudden had $80 million worth of gear at our disposal that Beautiful. we could get from Lidditz. Beautiful. And all of a sudden we start doing big business, oh, yeah. you know, and it was oh, amazing. Yeah. This oh is, God! This could go on for hours. This is over. We're gonna we're gonna wind up. We're gonna you know wrap what? this we'll up. Do, we'll do. Oh, we gotta do sequels. Oh, later. we totally gotta do sequels. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here with this. This is what we know. So Martina is now opening for Garth Brooks. John has sold his company to Claire Brothers, but it's really no different because he's still running his company, and everything is blowing up now. Was there any before we sign off on this particular episode? Had you had a kid yet? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> He's got three beautiful daughters. Martina opened for Garth, and I was triple dipping. I was production manager, had the sound company, yes. and my wife was the opening act. We love this. Oh, this is so God. fantastic. 93, 94, I spent more time with Garth than I did with Martina, but I had trusted friends that went out to do front of house or monitors or whatever. Okay. 95, Garth took the year off. Which worked out great because December 2nd, 22nd, December 22nd of 1994, our first child was born. Aww. In Lainey. 94, Garth went to Europe for the first time. <laughs> every time every time Garth does something, John has a baby. <laughs> and he asked Martina to open. Oh, I love it. And so she came over and opened shows for about a month. We were in Europe. And we found we, she was, the she got pregnant while we were at the Westbury Hotel in Dublin, Ireland. I love it. And then a month later, we're in Sweden, I think, and trying to explain to a Swedish runner who doesn't speak much, much English 
a pregnancy yeah, test. Yeah, I need a pregnancy test. But he got one, and I found out right after sound check that oh Martina God. tested positive, oh and I went, God. holy moly. This is the good positive test in this oh, case, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we had Delaney in December of 94, and then 95, Garth took the year off, so I was with Delaney and Martina the whole year of ninety five. Oh, I love it! I love it. We're, we're gonna we're gonna wind up because this. We All can, right, John and I could talk probably for the next six months. <laughs> He's so interesting. He has so much to offer. John, I thank you so much for your time. Oh, God, I love it. And uh, trade secrets, people, and that is a double entendre for a reason. It is trade secrets, and it's trade secrets between each other. So thank you so much, John, for being on my show. I'll give you some of my favorite advice. Yeah. Good is the enemy of great. Ah. The harder you work, the luckier you get, and either you rock or you suck. Or you suck. (laughs) Which only means if you're going to do something— just do it right. Do it with That's your whole heart. That's what it means. Do it with your whole yeah. heart. Oh, well, thank you so thank much, you John. Thank you for having me, Candace. Oh, thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. John McBride, ladies and gentlemen, Blackbird Studios. What an incredible honor. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you.